says, when I look at the heavens, uh, uh, the moon and the stars, uh, the work of your fingers, what is man that you are mindful of him? I stood on Hallfield Common once a long time ago and had a sense of this littleness of man. It's just one of those moments, you know. I could see across Hallfield Common and across south and bits of South Bristol and it seemed to be, I don't know how many, two, three miles away that I could see and it suddenly struck me that the crust of earth that I was standing on may not be much wider than I could see in the distance. I was standing on this little crust of earth on this rather vulnerable um, sort of globe floating around the universe. Uh, well, not floating, but spinning around the sun. There was a time when the psalmist said, what is man that you are mindful of him, that probably we thought the sun and everything went round us and we were the centre of the universe. And that all changed a few hundred years ago when suddenly we realised we're not the centre of the universe. In actual fact, we are going round the sun in this giant orbit. And then we discovered that we're not just in one little galaxy, but this universe contains how many thousands, millions of galaxies and suddenly you begin to see the vastness of the universe in which we live and, the, and you think of the God who created this universe who by just being able to create it is by nature greater than the sum of the universe that he has created and again we say what is man that you are mindful of him now Please bear that concept in mind as we look at Psalm 2. What is man that you are mindful of him? And what is man that he should dare to go to God? Psalm 2 is a brilliant psalm. I love it. But it depends on your already attitude to God, how this will appear to you. Because this psalm could appear to you as ominous and threatening. And that wouldn't necessarily be unintentional in the psalmist's mind. Or it can be awe-inspiring and utterly reassuring. That's Psalm 2. It talks about the sovereignty of God. And it arises from a promise that God made to King David. It's suggested by some and one of them would be Harry Moveley. You've never heard of Harry Moveley unless you're associated by Bristol Baptist College. He was my Old Testament tutor there. I think he's dead now. Um, and he was also senior Hebrew lecturer at Bristol University. And uh, it was said that when he took his final Hebrew exam, he only got 99%. And the students set up a search for the lost 1%. He's a man who knew his Hebrew and loved the Word of God. And so we're going to be looking at it from his translation in a minute. But he's one of the people who suggests, and there's no certainty of this, 
but suggests that it may well have been a psalm used at the coronation of the Judean kings. Because it's based upon a promise God made to David. And if you want to follow it up later, you'll find that promise in Second book of Samuel and chapter 7. And it came at a point when King David, having been elevated to king, and having extraordinarily, by the help of God, united the, um, the confederacy of tribes into one single nation under God's rule, having achieved that, and then gone and built a, a great cedarwood palace for himself, suddenly had this quirk of conscience and said, here I am living in a cedarwood passage, palace and God's Ark of the Covenant is still dwelling in a tent. Now I haven't got time to go into Ark of Covenant now. You must talk to me about it afterwards if you need to. But it was a part of the furniture in the Mosaic Tabernacle and this Ark of the Covenant was now 400 odd years old and it had been carried around uh, with the utmost utmost um, seriousness and reverence and it dwelt in a tent and David is saying here am I living in my cedarwood palace surely the ark of the, the covenant which is the, the very symbol of the presence of God should have its own glorious temple to dwell in and he said to his court prophet whose name was Nathan I want to build a temple for our God and Nathan said you are a man of you are a man of God do what is in your heart but that night Nathan whether he was troubled or just he always went out a night and prayed went out and prayed and perhaps under the stars he heard God speaking to him I want you to go back to David and tell David in all my time have I ever asked any of the kings have any of the leaders any of the judges of Israel to build me a home have I ever said I need you to do that? And aren't I the one who took David from being a shepherd and made him a king? And aren't I the one that, that sort of handed over his enemies to him? Aren't I the one that, uh, that, that, that this is all about? Let me make the decision, in other words. David will not build me a temple. But you tell David, I will make a name for him. I will build him. This is the extraordinary promise. So that when David is saying, I must doing something great for God, God said, no, I'm going to build up a name for you. And your son will build a temple for me. And your son will be given a kingdom which will extend and never end. It will last forever before me. Because I will be his father and he will be my son. So here is God has made this extraordinary promise. A kingdom without end that will continue in the line of David. And so that gives you the background to this psalm which is going to be read to us by um, Nicola and Richard. Because they're going to be using Harry's translation, by the way. Okay. And it comes in three parts. The first part 
is the voice of the prophet. The second part is the voice of the king and his confidence in the assurance of God's promise. And the third part is the prophet again saying, God has made this promise to our king. Now you nations, take note. Why are foreign nations in turmoil? Why do people make empty threats? Kings everywhere take up their positions. Rulers sit together in council against the Lord and his anointed king, saying, let us burst their bonds, let us discard their cords. The one who reigns in heaven will laugh. The Lord will deride them. Then he will address them in his anger. In his fury, he will terrify them. I myself have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will recite the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. I today have fathered you. At your request, I will make over to you the nations. You will inherit the wide world. You shall break them with an iron scepter. You shall shatter them like a pot of clay. Now, you kings, pay attention. Rulers everywhere, learn your lesson. Serve the Lord with due reverence. Rejoice, but tremble. Pay homage sincerely, lest he be angry and bring life's journey to a quick end. For his anger blazes in a flash. Happy are those who seek his protection. So you can understand why it may be suggested that that was read at a coronation. Each successive king, because the nations are in turmoil all around Israel. Israel, well, Israel was was a, a small nation compared to the superpowers that were around them. There was a dying superpower down south in Egypt, and there were the up-and-coming superpower of Assyria, which was then taken over by the Babylonians and later by the Persians. There was international turmoil all around the Middle East then, just as there is these days. Uh, The kings of Israel has to face onslaughts from all their enemies around and about who didn't worship Yahweh who had their own gods. So, at the accession to the throne of one of the royal kings, it was a great thing to remember what God had promised to David. During the reign of Solomon, all went well. (laughs) One could see in in the reign of Solomon that maybe this prophecy was being fulfilled in the most magnificent way. Because we read in Kings that uh, people and kings and wise men came from all the nations around and about to inquire of Solomon because of his wisdom and they made him wealthy. We know of the story of the Queen of Sheba who came and examined him and went away extraordinarily impressed. So during the reign of Solomon, one could say, way, 
what God promised David. Look, it's happening. Take note, you kings, around and about. Unfortunately, when Solomon died, his son messed up somewhat, sort of being not very politically astute and rather anxious to to establish his own power base. He made some big mistakes. And the kingdom which had been united under his granddad, David, suddenly was split and never joined again. It became the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. And the line of David, the kings from David's family, ruled the smaller of those kingdoms, which was Judah. And they did it for 400 years, succession of David's line. But during those times, they faced all kinds of troubles from the surrounding nations. And at one time, they were besieged by Sennacherib, the Assyrian. And then one of their kings, Manasseh, was taken into into exile. And eventually, the Babylonians came and they destroyed Jerusalem. And goodbye, line of David. What happens now to the promise that God made to King David? Does God's God's word die because men mess up or because of circumstances or because we have decided to interpret it in this particular way? Because through Moses, God has said that the Lord doesn't lie. Every word of God proves true. But when Israel went into exile in Babylon... They did come back after 70-odd or however many years, but never again did they have a king of David's line. So what happened to this unending kingdom? What happened to God's word? Is it nonsense? Yet God had said, why do the nations, why are they in turmoil? Why do they make these empty threats? They're taking up their positions and sitting in council against my my anointed one. They say, let's burst their bonds asunder, and it seems by the time of Babylon that they've achieved it, but God is still sitting in the heavens and he's laughing at these machinations of men. God, in his sovereignty, isn't in the least bit dismayed. He has declared that he laughs. He scoffs. He says he will address them in his anger because he has placed his king on Zion, his holy hill. Well, they must be nuts believing that, mustn't they? As they sit down by the river in Babylon and hang their harps upon a tree. And God can say, I myself have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. I've done it. Yeah, look. Just look at what you've done. So the understanding of the psalm changed because they still hoped in God. And the understanding changed 
This is a psalm concerning the Messiah. The one who is going to come, the great and promised one, which as God has, has said will be our great, our great redeemer and deliverer. The one whom the nations will bow down and worship. This has to do with the Messiah. And so the hope clicked in again. God hasn't failed us, it's just that we didn't get it right in our understanding. But of course, if you were one of the nations round about, you'd probably say, they're sort of uh, kidding themselves, aren't they? That's stupid. They just can't face reality. It's all over. And of course, forever is a very long time. And as you pass through four, nearly 500 years, suddenly you come to this woman, young woman, having a baby in Bethlehem. And uh, both she and her husband actually are descended from the line of David. And extraordinary signs accompany his birth, but they're soon forgotten because this baby is hidden then. First of all, he's hidden away in Egypt. And then he's hidden away in Nazareth. Can any good thing come from Nazareth? Mm-mm. Until 30 years later, suddenly there bursts onto the scene this guy, John, known as the Baptist, because he baptizes people in the River Jordan, and begins to announce that the Anointed One, the Messiah, they've all been waiting for, is here. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And when he baptizes Jesus, some in the crowd hear the voice of God repeating over Jesus the words that he promised to David. This is my son, my beloved one. And then later, when Jesus is transfigured before a handful of his disciples they hear a booming voice again. Was it booming? I suppose I just assume it was booming. I don't know. Saying again, this is my son, my beloved one. This is what he had said about David's son, the one whose kingdom would never end. But David's king, Jesus' own nation, raged against him, didn't they? Not all, not hoi polloi, not us. We loved him. Because this Messiah, demonstrating the the, the, the character of God who has warned the nations, the same God who looks down on men, the same God who laughs at the nations, Jesus, demonstrating this God, heals the sick, drives out demons, has compassion on the poor, welcomes the children, and gives time 
to the outcast. But others in his nation hate him. Hate him because he exposes their wickedness, their jealousies, threatens their power base. And so the nations rage against him. His own people rage against him. And they have him crucified. Ha! Huh. So much for that kingdom that has no end. Is the Lord still sitting in the heavens, scoffing at them? Well, you know what happened on the third day, don't you? God raised Jesus from the grave. This was his son. This is his beloved. This is the Messiah. This is of the line of David. This is the king of the kingdom he promised. Jesus Christ is raised. You can't get him now. You can't kill him anymore. Doesn't God sit in the heavens and scoff at the nations? You little people, how dare you oppose me? How can you resist me? And yet, what are they resisting? They're resisting a God who in his incarnation in Christ has demonstrated mercy and righteousness and peace and compassion and anxiety to win over and welcome and acknowledge and bring to himself a people who were wayward. Well, of course, that was 2,000 years ago, wasn't it? And uh, that's even longer than it was between the time that uh, Israel went into Babylon and the Messiah came. <laughs> Four times as long, actually. It's a long time since Jesus was raised from the dead all those years ago. Of course, his name has gone all the way around the world. There is, is it, am I right in thinking a third of the world population honour him as their king. But uh, 2,000 years is a long time. And we look around us and we read our papers and we see the objections of nations and the objectionable actions of nations and we see the terror that some people feel themselves in, and we feel the hopelessness that we ourselves are caught up by sometimes. We feel the frustration and the, uh, that we sometimes feel about our own leaders and the leaders around the nations. And we look at Jesus and we say, but nobody's doing his stuff, nobody wants to have anything to do with him. When we take this bread and this wine in a minute, we're remembering the king who gave his life for us to demonstrate the mercy and compassion of God. But we eat and drink this until he comes. Because as in the same way that the impossible happened at the birth of Jesus, that the line of David continued when it had seemed dead for 500 years, in the same way that the impossible occurred then, because God has set his king on Zion, his holy hill, so the impossible, from this world's perspective, is going to happen again, because we shall see him coming in the clouds. 
with his holy angels. And we shall recognize that God has set his king on Zion, his holy hill. And the nations, we're told, will be astonished. And many will cry to the rocks and mountains to fall upon them. Because have you ever been in that position where you have deliberately done something wrong or deliberately hidden from yourself for a time that you're doing something wrong and then suddenly it occurs to you that you, you know you've done it and you might now be exposed? Have you ever had that experience? And now you feel that you might be exposed and your wife or your family or your children or your boss or, or your minister or, or if you're a minister, your congregation might find out what you were thinking and what you did and suddenly all this overwhelms you and you are terrified at the prospect. And then we find mercy in Jesus. But when Jesus comes again, that terror will be there of exposure. But it will be too late. Because now is the time to put it right before then. Which is why the psalm says to the nations. It's not last bit addressed to you, but it's to the nations. You kings, pay attention. Rulers everywhere, learn your lesson. You serve the Lord with reverence. Rejoice because he really has set his king and he's a righteous king and he's a merciful king and he's a saving king. He has set his king on Zion, his holy hill. Rejoice and remember this is awesome, almighty God. Pay homage to him. But now, I want to address you. Because tomorrow, if not, if you don't already do it today, you're going to go out into this same world that is being addressed. And you're going to be working in organisations and corporations and perhaps even with governments. I don't know. Who for their part have no interest in the Lord and his anointed, have no interest, in, no interest in his way or his truth or his life. Remember, God sits in the heavens and he scoffs at their folly because who are we before Almighty God? apart from his grace. So when you go to work, are you prepared to serve him with due reverence, his way, his truth, in the power of his life? Will you rejoice in the real king rather than the king of the boardroom or the king of the nation? And will you in your work pay homage sincerely to Jesus Christ, the King, who has been placed on Zion, God's holy hill? 
Like I said at the beginning, this psalm can either be ominous and threatening, or it can be awe-inspiring and utterly reassuring. Because whatever happens to us as a result of our being citizens of the kingdom of heaven, God has already declared he has the last say. And there will be vindication, and there will be righteousness, and there will be judgment, and there will be peace, and there will be acknowledgement. And he has said he will be with us always. God, I'm so glad that you are the, the God of this massive, inconceivable universe. And yet, through your Son, Jesus, and his Spirit, you promise to be with me, with us, these tiny little vulnerable creatures you have loved on this globe spinning round the sun in one of your galaxies. I am with you always, he said, even to the end of the age.